Welcome to Headliners, the podcast. This is the paper review that won't put you to sleep. You can catch us live every night from 11 on GB News with a panel of top-notch comedians going through the biggest stories hitting the next day's papers. But don't worry, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Headliners. Good evening and welcome to Headliners. I'm Simon Evans. Very shortly, my comedy guest, Simon Fanshawe, Stephen Grunt and myself will be going through tomorrow morning's newspapers to see what we have in store for us. Hello again. Welcome to Headliners. I'm Simon Evans. Joining me tonight, we have fellow Brightonians, Stephen Grant and Simon Fanshawe. Fellows of one another and fellows of me too. So uh, <laughs> this is a small me too meeting in a way. There's three men in a sinking boat. Really. Yeah. <laughs> well, come on, let's give our, our newly founded city a little bit more of optimism than that. Very nice to see you both, gentlemen. And um, Stephen, I think this is our first time together on this particular show. Yeah, looking forward to it. Simon. We've been on a few stages together over the years, you Ma- and I. Many, many places uh, in many ways, but never this. So. We started out pretty much at, almost in the same month, I think. I think one of my third or fourth open mic gigs, you were on the on the, on the bill as well, in Oval. Do you remember that one? I remember you doing a topical joke about the Spice Girls first song, which, right. which really genuinely dates how long we've been doing this. <laughs> know, it lasted a good six months. So that would have been in the... 96? 96. Yes. Like well, yeah. yes well. If you want to be my lover, you've got to get with my friends. Correct I, me if I'm can wrong, I, can I just but say... that has always been an absolute deal-breaker for most of the women I've known. That was, that was the joke. So I, I that, love. that was a good laugh. Always yeah. good laugh. I, I just wanted to make the point that uh, I started in 1981, so I'm very, oh. very old and I'm going to shout my age well, under did the you bus win, stop. You won the Perrier in about 96, wasn't it? 89. 89. 89. You were on the decline already before we even picked up. I gave up. I stopped before you started. You (laughs) got out of the top. This is like like being on the Muppets. You're like Statler and Waldorf, you two. Or uh, (laughs) what was the Eamon Andrews one? This is your life. And you haven't seen him since 1989. (laughs) This was your life. The most feared compare. Best joke was Woody Allen. Yes, he thought he was drowning. He saw his life pass before him. Then he realised it was somebody else's life. (laughs) Brilliant. We have to get on with our show. We have the uh, front pages to look at. Let's start with the Daily Mail, which has UK outrage as two (coughs) Brits face firing squad. We will be covering that story very shortly. The Daily Telegraph also have the same story. Captured British fighters sentenced to death and a picture of them there looking understandably forlorn behind the bars. The Independent face the same uh, lead story. Britain's face execution after Russian show trial. Um, A picture of them there in what I suppose under the circumstances you could legitimately call happier days. Sean Pinner and Aidan Aslin there. The Guardian have low-paid care workers can't afford petrol to get to work. I don't think they're the only ones, to be honest, at this stage. There is also a photograph for the Soviet-era show trial. The Financial Times have Sunak lost £11 billion of taxpayer cash in debt blunder, say economists, and a photograph of the sham trial. And also Palantir poaches senior NHS staff as part of a bid to clinch a £360 million contract. 
The Daily Mirror have a photograph of Prince William, who has been caught uh, undercover flogging the big issue, which is a bit much, to be honest, snatching bread and meat out of the mouths of the homeless. But there we are. I suppose he's got to have something to fill his afternoons. And sentenced to death by Putin, that story clearly dominating the front pages, the Daily Express as well. Uh, with a photograph of them in the trench. Millions given chance to buy own home. The Daily Express is the only newspaper which seems to be leading with the Boris Johnson uh, PR uh, exercise. And he's a Prince William spotted selling big issue. And finally, The Sun, just like Mum Diana. That is cleverly placed next to a woman who clearly is nothing like Mum Diana. Uh, that would be Kelly Brook, I believe. And uh, it relates instead to... Uh, William, whose mum was, of course, very charitable in her endeavours to help the homeless too. So those are the front pages. Let's have a look and see what's inside. So we begin with the front page of Friday's Mirror um, and most of the other papers as well. News of sentencing of British fighters in Ukraine. Simon, you have this. Well, the headline is Brit fighters captured in Ukraine sentenced to death by Russian-backed court. Uh, you just heard the story on the news and you just recapped it there from all the headlines. I would only say one thing about this story is that, that, that you're either against the death penalty or you're for it. Mm -hmm. I've always instinctively known I was against it. And for a long time, I couldn't work out why. And then one day I saw Sister Helen Prejean on the television. Did you ever see the film Dead Man Walking? That's Sister Helen Prejean. And she wrote a book called Dead Man Walking. And she said something amazing in the book. She said, a person is not just the worst thing they ever did. And I thought, that's, abs that's compassion. If somebody's got the potential to change, we should never dispense with their life. So for me, it's an issue of absolute principle. So I would only say in this, if you've ever thought you were in favour of the death penalty, this is the moment when you're tested. Because this is the moment when you realise that actually the death penalty is absolutely beyond the bounds mm. of acceptability. I suppose there is something, it's, uh, whether it's a political or a philosophical point, to uh, distinguish between how people might be treated in a court of law when you're in the midst of a war as well, I, I mean, and the details of what they've done and so on, it would seem to me that this is a continuation of war in a sense. You know what I mean, Stephen? Yes, and, and the kind of even... I, I totally follow what Simon is saying as well, but I don't even think there's an argument that, if you, that, that even if you had a working legal system with a death penalty at the end yeah. of it, that this qualifies as such. No. It's not an internationally recognised court. No. Uh, they aren't being treated as prisoners of war because mm. they're not being recognised as members of the Ukraine military. No. And they were tried as effectively terrorists yeah. by virtue of being foreign people in a land that they don't recognise mm. as being their own, even mm. though they've been living in Ukraine. So, I mean, yeah, Which, I mean, to be fair, in my lifetime, that was a controversy between the uh, Northern Irish, uh, the Bobby Sands and so on, in uh, the Mays prison, and, and Mrs Thatcher's government, who refused to acknowledge what the Irish felt was their legitimate status. State of war. So, yeah. yeah, state of war. But it's, I, I, I wouldn't want to um, try and make any equivocation with that. I just wonder, and perhaps possibly I'm entering into the realm of magical thinking, whether there may be some attempt to, uh, this is a, 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 like a, a gambit, a gambit, and yeah. there will be a negotiation. I, and I think, I think you have to look to the fact that this comes on the back of literally a few days ago, uh, Ukraine and the Russian Federation. 
Federation swapping pris- prisoners of war. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, to some extent, more they've been swapping and repatriating bodies, which shows there is a level of correspondence going on between both sides, whether that is, you know, whether that is friendly or not is mm. probably unlikely. But it does show that if you basically play your strongest hand at the beginning, which is a death penalty, yeah. I imagine there will be some horse trading to follow with their lives. I let's, imagine they're very keen that Boris Johnson doesn't get involved in the negotiations. Let's hope his negotiating abilities <laughs> are a lot better than it was with Nasreen. Mm. Friday's Guardian next, one of the hot topic issues of the day. This is property ownership. And the Express, of course, led with it as well. Are the Tories on the right track with this policy, Stephen? What do you think? Well, I mean, the, the first question is, is this actually a new policy? This is a, effectively a relaunch of the right to buy scheme. Yeah. And uh, Michael Gove is, uh, has, has announced that Boris Johnson will announce well, effectively tomorrow, so Thursday, yeah. that um, people will be allowed to purchase their own homes using housing benefit as part of their income. So this is this would have to be a house that they're in and using housing benefit to pay the rent on, and it's a, it's what it's social housing, is it? It it's does social housing. Actually, housing. I haven't seen the. No, it's, I think it's both. I think yeah. there are two sides to this. One is housing associations, mm. which is yeah. social housing. But the, as far as I can read it, there seems to be an idea that any house that you want to buy, yes, yes it does. You don't have to be in it, so to speak. This this is a house that is going to be made yes. available. But you wouldn't be able to force the owner to sell to you, would no, you? Would no. The, the, the issue about social housing, I think, is that that when when Margaret Thatcher offered the right to buy the problem with it was was not necessarily the right to buy because the idea was that it was one for one so you replaced it it was the discounts yeah so what they're saying here is it's going to cost 3 billion pounds a year but actually oh, by the way we're not going to do that we'll do a couple of pilot schemes in the midlands mm. and actually it'll be capped within existing expenditure in yeah. other words it's a, as you so it's, it's yeah. pr it's yeah. pr and, and did you say Simon, you have some experience with housing associations and so well, i'm a chairman of a housing yeah. association called Hexcombe, which is in south, the five boroughs in south east london would it help if people were able to buy more of these well, or is well, that the, not the point? Really? No, the point about it is that a lot of people, even if using benefit, and you make the point that you can't, you know, it still doesn't give you the deposit. Well, mm. this is this the problem. They, they, they say you can use your housing benefit. There's two issues here. Yeah. The first one is you they're still going to commercial lenders yeah. who, are, who are being told to accept that as income. Mm. But the reality is you don't get housing benefit if you have save or you don't get um, universal credit unless you've got savings over 16000 Exactly. It's a pounds, perfect catch which, which is the deposit you require in order to buy a home. Yeah. So it, I don't the, know who's going to qualify. And the daft thing about doing it in social housing is that there's a very simple calculation how housing associations work. We own properties which people live in, their homes, we manage their homes for them and on the basis of that asset we borrow and in order yeah. to build new homes yeah. and then the idea is we let them out at social rent so they're cheap, yeah. housing benefits less and so on and so forth. If you start selling off the asset, yeah. you can raise less money, yes. which means it's you can build away less the homes. Of housing associations to find yeah, them. and they keep on saying it's, it's one replaced to one, but it that never, ever happened before. No, well, that is the red line. It usually, the, the suspicion is that Tory governments use this kind of policy yeah. to actually diminish the status of and, and, and the availability of social... And housing. you might remember way back when, uh, in Westminster, of course, yeah. there's a famous case in which actually it was used to gerrymander the result on the basis that the more people who bought their homes lived in a particular area, the more they would vote Conservative. My, the first place I ever lived in, I was just renting, or in fact, to be honest, sofa surfing in, in a friend's flat, but his father had bought it. He bought uh, in a place called Osprey, Heights. It was in Battersea near Clapham Junction. It was part of the uh, of um, of uh, Wandsworth, and um, it had basically been bought by some developers from the council. The council had essentially evicted all the tenants. 
on the premise that it was there was some dangerous amount of asbestos in the building. This was the rumour anyway that went around. And then uh, once they were out, they, they fixed it up and plugged it to these developers. <laughs> absolutely dangerous amount of collateral, though. Yeah, <laughs> Can I just also point out, as three Sussex residents right now, the idea of taking housing benefit, timesing it by three and a half, and allowing yourself to buy property with it seems almost non-existent. Yeah. Yes, I was going to say, you'd be very lucky to get a dog kennel somewhere out to the west of the city well, at the know, moment. Maybe they're going to terraform Lincolnshire or something. <laughs> Friday's Times now, and Labour are taking the side of the workers in this upcoming rail strike. Um, well, to be fair to Labour, it says, yes, drivers on three more lines join rail strikes. So they're company by company by company. They're picking up the rail strikes, and it's going to happen sometime between, I think, the 21st and the 26th of, of, of uh, June. Um, the, the, well, Labour's trying to ride both horses at once, actually. It's trying to say we're on the side of the workers because they actually haven't had a pay rise since 2019 yep. and therefore they haven't kept up with inflation. But also, by the way, we're on the side of the passengers. But, but always there are two things that always happen in these strikes. One is that uh, trade unions have barons and uh, trade and companies, trade, uh, rail companies, handsome profits, all very mm. attractive. Their yeah, profits yeah. are all very brill creamed <laughs> and, uh, you know, rather well shaved. And, um, but the other thing is that really annoys me is this idea that, because uh, I'm a rail traveller, I don't have a car, I've never had a car. I can drive, but I don't have a car. And uh, they say, oh, the rail unions say, we're punishing the rail companies. You go, no, you're not. And it's like those sketches. Do you remember in the silent movies where somebody swings a plank and you duck and I hit Simon in the yeah, face yeah. with a plank? Yeah. It's always us. It it's never, always the no. damn passengers. Well, I mean, we, we really must resist going on a southern rail rant because that could take up the rest of the programme. For, for but I once said, so, there was yeah. a picket outside the station once and I went up to the picket and I said to the chap, I said, hello. I said, genuinely, I'd quite like to know, you know, what you're on strike mm. for. He said, we talk to him. He said, this other bloke. But, well, he's talking to somebody else, and I'd quite like to ask you. He, I said, you've got official picket. He says, you deaf. He's going to... And you thought, he really hasn't got much you know, interest they in don't winning have... me round to I've his I've had a couple case, of conversations really with, uh, with Southern Rail employees at just at Ho Station about, you know, and, and honestly trying to start off quite polite, yeah. and, and they, they seek or say, what, what, what is your take on this, Stephen? I mean, you're, you're a reasonably sort of union-friendly individual, aren't you? I, I, I am, and I, I, I sympathise with the, the absolute core level of behind the strike, which is the fact that their, their earnings have not been linked. And I know there are a lot of people out there going, well, hang on a second, a lot of people are in financial dire straits right now. Mm. Why should that be any... Train drivers earn as much as 70 grand a year. Well, I mean, yes, I'm not going to look at the specifics of how yeah. much they earn and then say they... But it, but it has been frozen. The, the issue I have is that I don't think their, their mechanism... No. for actually um, getting their point across, getting what they want to achieve, actually works anymore. And also, I have a slight issue with the RMT as a union. Uh, you remember, this is a pro-Brexit union. They do have a very strong sense of uh, our way or the highway. OK. And, and I don't... And they're, sorry, they're the drivers' union, right? The drivers' union. ASLEF is more like the... Uh, uh, the actual rail workers. The and, and you have, and yeah. you have the, um, I think, T Tessa or something like that, who actually are the, the station... Tass, Master, I think they Tass, call that, they, yeah. and, and the ones who work in the actual... Um, mm -hmm. There's three separate unions that cover it, and they, they're all working together. It's nationwide, so this is very much coordinated, so they very much feel strongly about this. However, yeah. I don't think their approach is targeting the right people. And they need... One thing, and I hate to say it, but I do agree with Boris Johnson on this, there is there are antiquated notions of how to run and how to, and where to employ people. There well, it's worth pointing out in that respect that there are two issues here. RMT are claiming that it's a pay issue, I think, and ASLEF yeah. are claiming that it's an issue about the fact that their job... It's so, an existential crisis, yeah. So it, yeah. So, it's drive, you know, so it is guardless trains and so on and so forth. Yeah. But I remember the, one of the people saying to me, well, the thing is, it's only the guard who can look out and see along the train. Actually, in Brighton, the 
platform very slightly <laughs> curves. So, in fact, that is actually not true. Einsteinian physics is it, the end of Ashleff. Yes, the camera would be, the camera would be so more able to see that Sometimes passenger. the journey, entire journey involves a two-degree turn to the right. I was looking at their name today, Ashleff, and thinking, why do I feel warmly inclined towards this issue? I've realised it's because it's a cross between Aslan and Gandalf. <laughs> and so they've, they've managed to circumvent my natural hostility to you. Anyway, listen, we must be anyway. on Friday's Independent Next. Prince William has got a new job, Stephen. Yes, uh, uh, Prince William um, has been spotted selling the big issue. Uh, it, it is not, he's not been turfed out post... <laughs> you know, it's, it's, he's not been told, along with Andrew, to sling his hook. He's yeah. very much still in the good books. But, no, uh, a, a member of the public... Uh, spotted him. Um, eventually. Eventually. <laughs> it does feel a bit d- like that. Despite our ability to look over these people. Hello! Yeah, there he was. Prince here. Selling, selling, the, uh, selling the big issue and yeah. uh, went over to sort of have a close look, realised it was Prince William, had a chat with him, said he was, again, it's, it wasn't something that had mm. been highly publicised. The reason why it came to, um, uh, came to people's notice is because I think his, his brother-in-law then yeah. put it up on LinkedIn, which I think, if you know, the LinkedIn social network is the biggest news they've had for the best part. Is that how big issue recruit these days? I, I'm not, I, I think it's <laughs> slightly I, mean, so, I like the idea of the fact that the kind of homeless news has been spread across a workers' network. Yeah. But um, but the re- I'd what's find Prince Harry more credible, wouldn't you? As a big issue, so well, he's ex-military. Yes, I suppose he would do. But I, it did slightly come over to me, darling. What would happen if we got thrown out of all three heises? Yeah, you know, <laughs> I'd be on the street selling tatler. You know? Wouldn't you say Prince William? He's a very well-presented man. I can't imagine he looks like a proper. I don't. I don't mean no, I tell you how it happened. I tell, also, well. how it happened was apparently the guy who spotted him is an ex-policeman and what he actually spotted first was the covert surveillance operation. Oh, nice. And he thought, I wonder what's happening. And then he went and he saw it was Prince William. That's what we always think I'm doing. I'm just poking it back in. (laughs) (laughs) The the funny thing was, is apparently uh, he went and chatted with Prince William. He was very polite and then Prince William after said, can I sell a big issue to you? Yeah. And he said, I'm sorry, I don't have any change on me. And then Prince William whipped out a card reader. Oh, fantastic. Whipped out a card reader. That's what I like. I think it's really good, isn't it? The digitally connected homeless. they have going to have to have those soon. And I have been approached by a beggar with a card reader on the train. They have, well, I say beggar, but they're selling the tissues, but it's essentially, it's, yes. it's like glorified But also things, buskers, but have, had card readers buskers have got card readers, QRs, it's brilliant. Yeah, I love yeah. all that. Well, I, my wallet was stolen over the weekend. It's OK, it's fine. I had a bit of cash stolen, but uh, my cards went, of course, you immediately just phone them up and catch them, fine. I, I imagine the wallet this. was very expensive. The though. wallet was not expensive at all. It had two very valuable John Lewis gift cards in there, which I'd got a refund <laughs> for on to, and they have gone now. That's annoying. However... <laughs> I'm sure there's something from the John Lewis watching. <laughs> Whoever hit my wallet, if they watch this show, they'll never go, oh, that's what they are. They can go and spend those. And two it's John like, Lewis. They're bare of the first one gets lost, yes. yes. Anyway, listen, the point is... When you lose your cards, you realise London is no longer... You can't get around with cash. I've got plenty of cash, but I can't... I, I have literally been unable to buy around in a pub, had to come back out and ask to borrow a friend's card and buy, buy his card off him for, for five minutes. There are pubs now... That's that will the best take, wallet fumble I've heard in a long take, while. Ca- Terribly sorry, lost my wallet. Oh, dear, I haven't got any cards. But you've got cash. You would think that yeah. that was... You know, you cannot go on the... Tra- mm. you, if you try and travel on, on TFL with, with cash, you're absolutely scuppered. You, you might as well be a beggar. Well, can if, I suggest you're gonna, you go you're to... You've have cash sticking out of all your pockets like a good old-fashioned millionaire. Do you, do you well, think we're a... not far off homeless people coming up to us asking for money, us handing them cash and saying, well, what, what can I do with this? Yeah, yes. Absolutely. On to Friday's Express, and I think this will be the last story of the first section. The PGA Tour isn't happy with some of its players. 
So well, the PGA Tour has yeah. banned banned huge stars of the game after they switched to Saudi LIV Golf. <laughs> Furious statement. I love it. Yeah. Um, I read this and I thought, fantastic, this is really terrific. PGA are, you know, protesting against the fact that the Saudis are, you know, well known for their abuses of humor. No. Yes. No, there's no, nothing to do with this. This is a family yeah. squabble. Yeah. It's basically, you go and play with them, you can't come to my party. Mm-hmm. Basically, they're saying, if you play on that one, you can't play on ours, and that's the end of it, which I find extraordinary. The LIV, this Saudi golf tournament, though, the winner gets four million quid, uh, dollars. Four million dollars. That's not bad. I don't play golf. It seems to be a stupid game. And it won't game. be winner-takes-all either. There will be substantial prizes. For oh, 120K is the smallest prize for the yeah. person who comes up. But I did, I did just by way of jolliness, look up um, golf terms, so I thought you might like to know them. That My favourite are albatross, birdie, bogey, mulligan, skinny chunk, flop shot, snowman, waggle and a shank. So, you know, it sounds like a Kama Sutra. And then I looked at rowing, because that is the most sexually ambiguous sport ever <laughs> in terms of its thing. And, of course, it's cocks, it's crabs, front stop, rigger, jigger and spoon. But very little money in it, despite that extraordinarily fruitful... Well, you can catch a crab, though. That's the point, Simon, you know. (laughs) Do you have any views on golf and the uh, money-grabbing element? Well, I mean, it's sort of connected to the story, but not entirely having an opinion on it. I'm just pleased you said LIV. I mean, spending the whole day seeing that, wondering whether it was Liv, LIV, or whether it was 54. Yeah. Uh, I was just wondering if it was (laughs) Roman numerals. I I didn't see the previous 53 Saudi Saudi golf tournaments. It's the home of Arabic numerals. I don't see it. It's not going to be Roman numerals. I don't right. see you as a, as a home. I didn't see you as a as a, as a public school boy. I studied <laughs> Latin as a young man. I I, I adore Roman numerals, uh, but it, I did do Latin actually. But no. I did go to public school. I was one of that very thin band of people who did it at comprehensive. Wow! Um, but we so have no, to move on, folks. What on is ninety seven? On the bombshell that golf <laughs> is all about the money. That's it for part one. Coming up, we'll be discussing working class aspirations, TikTok's toxic work culture. That's a nice one. And good old fashioned Chinese espionage. See you after the break. Join us for Ministry of Offence, the comedy panel show that's just like the news, in that the left fights the right and it doesn't really seem to matter who wins. We cover the big stories. It was, in fact, a troop of baboons and not angry vegans. I like that. And the really important stories. Fat naked cow gets stuck in swimming pool. It's a headline in a lot of local newspapers. We're on the same team, Nick. Yeah, but I'm just helping you. Join us for Ministry of Offence, Saturday nights, 8 o'clock on GB News. And welcome back to Headliners, South Coast Edition, with me, Simon Evans, Stephen Grant and Simon Fanshawe. Friday's Telegraph now as we move into the mid-range whimsy section of the show. Apparently the working class uh, shouldn't be uh, setting their ambitions too high. You've pretty much summarised the story there, Simon, to be honest with you. Uh, Catherine Burblesing, who is the chairman of the Social Mobility Commission... Yes. ..who has caused... And uh, headmistress, of course, we should say, of the very famous school. That's that's the thing. She has been given that sort of job of of overseeing social mobility. Yeah. And one of her... Well, her initial speech is going to basically say, rein in your ambitions on social mobility. Yeah. Uh, Basically, she's saying that working-class people should aim lower than Oxbridge. Mm. In, in, in other words, she's saying don't judge me by getting people who are from unemployed families with no education mm. to come out with first degrees from Oxford. It's not going to happen. No, I think that's reasonable. But, of course, it, it's, it's all about the messaging to some extent, isn't it, and judging the tone just right. I think I heard you saying, Simon, that you, you felt a little bit kind of grated well, by it. 
I do. She has a kind of political Tourette's, really, isn't she? She's mm. brilliant in some moments, and other moments you say something like this. And I, I just don't think it comes over right. I, I completely understand what she's trying to say, that actually, you know, that what's that phrase, the good is the enemy, the best is the enemy of the best... No, perfect is the enemy, the enemy of the good. Of the good. Yes, that. very so good. So to some extent, I that get that. exactly it, actually. And I yes. get what she's saying, and that's absolutely fine. Not everybody wants to be president or CEO. I get that. Mm. And it's stupid to tell all of us, I don't want to be CEO. But, but what I do feel is that there's a slightly patronising, well done, mm. well done, you know, you got out of the puddle. I wonder you whether know, and it I don't is, think that's reasonable. The, the one thing that I noticed was an immediate red flag for me, and this is something my father taught me to immediately distrust, was it is expected to say. This, was, this is a speech she's going to yes, give. She's she going is to expected give. to say. And I just wonder whether, a little bit like when the new guy comes into the BBC and he's expected to lambast political correctness or something, and then you actually see it and it's a tiny... Yes. It's just something... What I suspect she's actually doing is she's managing expectations across the group, across the class. She's saying of maybe 50,000 young men and women who have emerged from socioeconomic disadvantage this year, you're not all... You cannot legitimately all expect to get into speech. Let's not throw up our hands in horror if... Only a few yeah, but that can but all, others get into mm, the rust. But that can also be an excuse for the fact that actually no one's moving. And there's yeah. a very, there's yeah. a really good that's, piece. Of, that's my problem with yeah. it. Yeah. My problem with it is, is that she's redefining the parameters of what cons- what's considered mm. a success in her role. And the class is really, really significant. Is she this. redefining a, them, or is she asserting a possible? No, I think she's lowering. Level. She's lowering right. the expectations because okay. there's no real movement. There's a really interesting piece of work called the class ceiling mm. uh, by Sam Friedman not and like the cotton Daniel Lewis. And, no, not like <laughs> the class ceiling. And this is a project that's run out of the London School of Economics, and they wrote a book and series of papers. And one of the things that they show is that in the elite professions, so that's the top of civil service and, and, you know, lawyers and accountants and all that, if you come from a working-class background, you will earn £6,200 less a year no matter what level of, 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 of achievement that you make. And there is an absolute penalty from coming from working-class backgrounds. That's not very large. That's not bad. You're probably earning 150 grand a year. Yes, you're, but the point is, your yeah, but your your peer, your exact peer, comes from middle class, is earning a six and a half grand more. And you know that this, feels all right to me. I mean, well, I would well, no, be, no, I think no, Simon, no, Simon, no, no, that's not a joke. This is this no, is I'm not, I'm this is that you are being penalised. No, no, seriously, Simon, I'm There's, dead serious. If it's literally down to six k difference, regardless of your background. No, no, that's what I'm saying. No, it's not regardless of your background. If you're working class yeah. background, then it's six. That's, that's the no, but, it, no, but the point is that is true right the way across the elite professions. Not only do you earn less, you're less likely to yeah. achieve the highest grades. There is an absolute class penalty. People like me simply have an advantage in those professions, and it persists. Doesn't matter how clever I, you are. I absolutely admire you for centering yourself as a member of the elite. Anyway, that's, well, people sound very middle class, but Simon, as you know, I'm upper. You are upper. Middle Kingdom class. of Fife. Stephen, do you want to check in one last thing on this before we go? Yeah, I, I think I, I think the reality of it is is that uh, everybody should set higher parameters. I think mm. she will be measured on the success in in where she has those ringing endorsements of people who did go to those top levels, and yeah. I think she's made life harder for herself in the long run. She, she does seem to be able to do that, but let's, as you say, judge her on results at the end of the day. Friday's Times and a story that the three of us are absolutely best placed to discuss. This is the inner workings of TikTok. TikTok? <laughs> uh, 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 I mean, I, I rarely spend my days, you know, without a dip. <laughs> I rarely spend my days with a dip. Um, this guy called Joshua Marr, TikTok boss questions maternity leave. He said to his staff... That they thought people should simply not... Women should not be allowed to have maternity leave. And uh, But what's quite fun about this is that, having said that, 
Um, the company has now put out um, uh, a press release explaining that he's now taking some time off. So it appears that what, what is not good for the goose appears to be rather good for the gander. Can at this I ask, point. is it Joshua Ma? It's an interesting name. Uh, it feels like it's a, a multicultural, or what I would say, a multicultural. He is a member, Chinese whatever. person. Is he coming from a Chinese? He is. A, and, a, a, yeah, and work ethic. Because, I mean, it's, not, it's, no, it's no secret, is it, that the Chinese regard things like holidays and, and toilet breaks as being sort of Western decadence? Yeah. Well, I don't know about that. I don't know about Chinese culture. But the point is that he has said that taking time off and that yeah. there's an allegation. These are allegations made by disgruntled employees who feel that they've been under a really nasty culture in which they've had to work, where they've had to expect it to get up early in the morning and then stay on until China goes to bed. And all it's this so hard stuff. to get it right, isn't it? Because I remember seeing some sort of videos for people who work for other Silicon Valley operations where they all live in an enormous house with a swimming pool. Oh, that's right. That's and there are billiard tables and, and, yeah. and, and cushions on the floor. The thing that does make me laugh is that the companies always do this when these things happen. They blow up and and they put out an email which is headlined, Maintaining a Positive Working Culture. Yeah. And it always reminds me of those um, South African laws. There was the extension of black education was always about denying education yeah. to black people. Separate you know? but equal maternity rights. Exactly. Friday's male and Chinese espionage now. This is the new Cold War, Stephen. Yes, I didn't get TikTok, did I? I got no. actual espionage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so we're, going up, we're getting to so, zip through these a little bit. But I, they, well, I imagine the lines are more blurred than most people realise. But the reality of it is, is that um, there are Chinese cultural organisations that have yeah. had relationships with universities both in here and in the US and around the rest of Europe that are slowly but surely being extricated from the syllabus, effectively. Yeah. Uh, what it is is uh, there's an amendment to the Higher Education Bill coming out yeah. and what it's going to be is to try and remove the Confucius Institute. Uh, that is a Chinese state-sponsored programme to kind of uh, educate people about it's Mandarin and the culture. <laughs> and well, effectively, but, but at the same time, uh, there is a belief as a strong belief and is a cross-party belief as well yeah. that what they're doing is it's a small amount of propaganda yeah. to, to see people... Well, I'm people sure it is. The British Council or Consul... Is it Consul or Council? I can't remember. The, the overseas sort of... Yeah, uh, British Council. Yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's British propaganda, isn't it, to an extent? Well, I mean, people look at the World well, Service and, yeah, exactly. and think it is a form of propaganda. But soft effectively, power. But yes. effectively, they are... We have soft power. You have propaganda. They are undermining local values. And, and, <laughs> and we're broadening the horizons of people across the planet. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. But, but, yes, this is what's happened. Uh, it's been removed from Sweden already. It's oh. in the process uh, and it's almost been entirely eradicated by uh, Mike Pompeo, I believe, in the US yeah. uh, over the last few years from 100 institutions down to four. Right. And it's starting to happen here as well. And some I, people think it's long overdue. And I took the opportunity, because it's the Confucius Institute, to look up some Confucian quotes. And yeah. I was thinking... <laughs> from the, the Analects. There's a story at the moment around saying or an, uh, there's a suggestion that uh, Boris Johnson, as a result of the 40% vote against him, will purge cabinet members and uh, who didn't vote for him. And Confucius once said, before you embark on a journey of revenge, dig two graves. Very famous quote. Possibly his only good quote. Considering how wise he's supposed to oh, be, well, I've I... gone through his Goodreads page oh, and no, I don't I... think he's all that. Faced with what is right, to leave it undone shows a lack of courage. Mm. Good. Fine words and insinuating appearance are seldom associated with true virtue. He could be a whole chapter of quotes for Boris Johnson. He basically founded the Chinese civil service. He's not quite as wide-ranging as... As, as Machiavelli or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yes. The Friday's bin, bin's on the Wednesday. <laughs> Friday's, That's what Friday's I love about this mail. show. He's such a font of, uh, of knowledge, <laughs> you know. I, font, you said, yeah? Font, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I was going to catch you right. <laughs> Friday's mail and is Thailand about to become the new Amsterdam? 
Uh, who's got this? Simon. So this yes. is me. Living the high life, says the Daily Mail. Thailand legalises growing and selling marijuana, but bans recreational use as 4,000 prisoners serving time for weed-related drug crimes are released. My absolute favourite thing about this is a Daily Mail headline with the word weed in it, <laughs> meaning marijuana. Gar- and I can Gar- imagine all these people in their breakfast. Weed? <laughs> I don't think so. The basic thing is, it's absolutely fabulous, this. They have effectively legalised the private and at-home consumption of marijuana, right. and uh, they're legal. So you can't go out and deal it, I don't think, but you yeah. can buy it in shops and Amsterdam and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the thing is that... And then they released 4,000 people who'd been in prison for various weed-related offences. In, in The Little Mermaid, when all the lost souls are released from the... Yes. Yeah, do you know what I mean? And just, like, float... It must have been an absolutely joyful but, scene. But one does have to remember that the thing is, you know, while this appears to be kind of massively liberal, sort of liberalising gesture, yeah. you do have to remember that last year alone there were 15 Hundred protests in Thailand on the ba- against free speech and the politi- and incarceration yeah. of political prisoners, and there are fifteen hundred political prisoners who were tried last year alone. What do you so think, Stephen, about, about marijuana? I think I think exhibit my, A. The thing about this is <laughs> exhibit A is I say bit A a class B drug. Um, it, like all of these decisions, there's always an economic basis behind it. Yeah. And I think the strong economic basis here is the fact that those 4,000 people who are released are effectively part of a business that Thailand needs. Yeah. Both its agriculture and its tourism has been decimated by yeah. the pandemic right. in recent times. And actually, marijuana is something that really helps both of those sectors. Yeah. yeah. Agriculture and tourism. Because yes, and it's, of not course, only, it's not only private consumption, but it will be available for tourists to purchase. And it tends to then cascade into people eating out as well? Yeah, it, it, yes, it, all hours, all yeah. hours, to be honest <laughs> with you. I, I imagine the, uh, the petrol stations of Bangkok will suddenly find empty shelves of late-night snacks. I You'll don't... be glad to know that some of the, yes, the buds of various names like sugarcane, bubblegum, purple Afghani and UFO. Nice, UFO. We used to get those in the disco. I, I <laughs> am slightly baffled as to what the present law is in London, to be honest. Just walking around Hyde Park Corner today, the stench of... High powder, I don't know if it's skunk or whether there's some new strain I don't know about, but you, you, you walk from one cloud of the stuff to the next. You're a parent. Seem... I think it's the very least you could do is learn the law, well, Simon. It, I'm just saying it doesn't seem to be very... I do know what the law is. I'm being <laughs> ironic, but I don't think it's being very well imposed. I, th- I, think? Think, I think there are, I think it's just... It's, it's so a de facto legal I think it's so prevalent, really. I mean, yeah. realistically, it's the speeding... Of, uh, of, yeah. of of um, sort of personal law breaking. Well, except it? that nobody makes money out of speeding, but the government could be making a lot of revenue. I think. I, yeah. I think there are a lot of Western right. nations who'll be looking at what happens in Thailand from an economic perspective with very beady eyes. It could be the liberalisation we all dreamed of as teenagers. Part two is at an end. Fear not. Coming up in the home straight, we've got prisoners on podcast, love potions, and erotic Swedish bins. D I N S. We'll see you there in a couple of minutes. Welcome back to Headliners with me, Simon Evans, Stephen Grant and Simon Fanshawe. We are on the home straight, gentlemen, and an amazing story from Friday's Guardian. Now this reads like the movie The Fugitive, rewritten by the Coronation Street uh, writing desk. Who's got this one? Simon, me. you have it. Yes. Prisoner on the run for three weeks appears on Birmingham Podcast, is the headline. <laughs> this guy, Gregor Gray, rang up a podcast, having escaped from um, this prison, and said um, that the thing with prison was that it was causing him heartache. And he was driving him insane um, and that he wants to talk about this. 
There are two things about this story. One is that you think, well, he sounds rather sweet in a funny yeah. sort of way, because what he said on the podcast was he's going to plan to return to prison before his next parole hearing on the 14th of June. You think, oh, bless well, him. good luck with that, Greg. Yeah. I don't think they're going to be that sympathetic. But the peculiar thing about this is that there's something called imprisonment for public protection, IPP sentences, which were introduced and then fairly swiftly banned. And what they are is that you're, this guy was given four years for robbery. Yeah. He's now served 17. That's IPPs enabled the prison system to extend your sentence... Because they don't think he's safe. They don't well, that's safe, what, safe, that's safe to be amongst the public. Safe to be amongst the public. But, mm. So, you, therefore, whilst I say he sounds quite sweet, yeah. you then do have to say to yourself, well, why has this sentence gone on being extended to so the extent that it's 17 years? The psycho who helps the fellow change his wheel and then chucks a brick at him. At, do you remember that? Is it yes, up, but the point you know? is that, that... So, I think, I mean, they've been, they've been repealed, but not retrospectively. Yeah. So, this guy... I mean, 17 years for a sentence that you had for four? I mean, surely, is the prison service so terrible that mm. actually can't rehabilitate somebody who's in there for burglary and robbery. That's you, you the breaks my heart. Stephen, what, what would you do if you found you had a, an escaped criminal? I, I was going to say, I would absolutely get them onto the podcast. Yeah. I mean, I think this, this Birmingham podcast is punching the air, to be yeah. honest with you. Yeah. Uh, the, the I, chop shop. We're the all, chop we're all shop, looking yeah. for a niche, aren't we, or something to stick us? Ab- absolutely. And, and, it, and if anybody out there is on the run and is also a keen cyclist, <laughs> uh, then my podcast would absolutely be the I mean, natural like home Steve for you. Steve McQueen escaped from Stanley so long, so long yeah. as he was doing it on a mountain bike rather than on an actual <laughs> powered vehicle, yeah. I'm Fine. starting a podcast in the autumn called The Power of Difference, named after my book, and he could come on that as well. Fantastic. So, you, well, know. you know, we maybe really should, because he is obviously quite different. He is He's quite different. I rather love him. Friday's Telegraph and the BBC are going to single-handedly demolish echo chambers, Stephen. This, this is inc- a brilliant story. You yeah. know me. This is the sort of thing that I absolutely get my teeth into. We could okay. lose all our time talking about it, so I'll try and summarise. Yeah. The reality of it is, is that, as you all know, the world of cookies, and tracking means that if you start showing interest in things on the internet, you are presented with more of it. Uh, Computers learn what you like and present you with those adverts, etc, etc. It is causing echo chambers, not just in our conscious actions, but in our unconscious actions. And what the BBC has done is come up with an ethical artificial intelligence. And that is, what it's doing is it knows what you read, and it now starts inserting news stories that you wouldn't otherwise look at to try and break you out of your comfort zone. The issue with it is, is first and foremost, will people want to do that, yeah. you know. Secondly, is that the BBC's remit anymore? They've had their budget pretty much heavily slashed and they can't afford tech people anymore. That's the yeah. other thing. The people who know the tech, who understand this tech, yeah, are being yeah. paid big bucks all the way around the world. The BBC is struggling to get this technology in. So will it happen? I'm not sure. Will people want it? I'm not sure. But it is the right sort of thing to be doing because we're all getting it's narrower and narrower. Yeah, you're right. I have two issues with it. One is that it's um, being uh, spearheaded by a woman called Storm Fagan, now, I don't know, but that just sounds like a made-up name to me. I'm just going to come right out and say it. I am not sure she's not an AI creation herself. <laughs> sounds like she's been rescued <laughs> from an island, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> Incredible. But what I am genuinely more seriously worried about is that the BBC, without any shadow of a doubt, you may well want to push back on this, but to my mind, they have an agenda too, and it is so easy to say to people, oh, we're bringing you out of your bubble Mm. and instead we'd like you to become aware of this and this and this. And we all know the sort of thing that the Mm. BBC likes to draw attention to and it might not be what you want to read or watch, right? Okay, a couple of things about this. One is that that one of the balances they're looking for is in London, out of London. So they are trying to spread the thing regionally. I think by and large it's a good idea, but there's an important thing to remember. I think Matthew Side makes this point in his book Rebel Ideas. He talks about the difference between um, echo chambers and information 
information bubbles. Yep. So information bubbles are a cult. And what cults do is they absolutely hermetically seal and there are penalties for leaving. The light cannot shine in. You know, Tom Waits, you know, the gap and all. Mm. The light cannot shine in because that's, of course, what breaks the carapace, people leave. But what's interesting about information bubbles is, and what Matthew uncovered in this couple, there were two bits of research, one from Pew and one from Oxford. And what was interesting about it was that in information bubbles, the argument used to be that you never encountered other opinions. What is actually increasingly clear is that you do encounter other opinions. But here's the contrary thing. Encountering opinions that you do not have reinforce the opinions that you do have. Yeah. So the more you hear oppos- opposing opinions, the more you believe your own. Because that's it will more be a true tribal people, reinforcement. It's more true of yeah. people on the right than the left, but it's nonetheless true on both sides. It, it is artificial intelligence on the whole does not have an agenda. I would just like to point no, out. No, if she no, is, but and, and reality is, it's just as likely to show you something about always, cricket because all you but look Stephen, at. Stephen, it does have an agenda in the sense that I understand what you mean about machine learning, but. Mm. Um, it depends on the data set that you start with and the biases that may or may not be in there. So for instance, if that. you look at Siri, for instance, when Siri started, Siri didn't know what rape was, but she did know what Viagra was. Mm. Friday's Metro now, and forget Orwell's 1984, it seems Huxley's Brave New World was a more accurate depiction of the future, Simon. This, this is, is uh, sex drugs. This is a hideous story. Oh, come on. MDMA love, love potions <laughs> could be available within a decade, experts say. And this anthropologist, Dr Anna Machin of Oxford University, if that gives her any kind of credibility, talks about the idea that, you know, this could help you to fall in love if your relationship is going into difficulty. This is, yet, this is the most appalling thing to think, that we should be wasting energy on giving people false ways of falling in love with each other. The only thing that human beings have in common is that we're all different. And the only great joy we have is trying to discover that difference without the aid of any kind of false substances. Well, that's an absolute, absolute abs- poppycock. People have been relying on wine and beer and whiskey not- to be able to bear each other's company after the first three years of marriage. Uh, uh, but that doesn't mean to even meet it. them in the first place, I yeah, would argue exactly. as well. You meet them in the first place, but the idea... You're just you can... bitter because it will arrive too late for the you. The idea... No, I'm not bitter, I'm the very opposite. I'm the very opposite. I am so deliriously happy about the fact that I finally got married when I was 56. Love for me is like diabetes, it's oh, late onset. But I'm there and I love it. And the struggle to keep that going... Not the struggle, the, the effort, the compassion, the joy that you put into keeping your relationship going. People the idea, Simon, you say I am Team Simon. You're clearly happy, and the two of us <laughs> are struggling with the cynicism. People have always used a lot of artificial constructs before yes. uh, before they uh, give up on the relationship altogether. And if they've developed drugs which actually work, rather than all the mad flailing around that people do with expensive city breaks and having a third child, uh, what do you think, Steve? Well, I actually, I'm, I'm kind of somewhere in between the two of you, both sort of literally and also where you stand on this. My thoughts are that yes, I wouldn't look to try to rescue relationships with medicine, but the reality of it is, is it, it makes up for a, a serious lack in dopamine and oxytocin that yeah. comes during a relationship going badly. And you know what? That is a major tr- triggering factor in depression and mental health issues. Mm. And if someone's relationship breakdown is causing them a huge amount of upset, that the idea that that's just what happens with love and you have to stick it, you could say that about any mental health issue. And as far as I'm concerned, the research happening could genuinely save lives. And so as far as I'm concerned... It's, it's quite a, interesting. There's, there's a lot a lot of research coming out now that psychedelic drugs are definitely helpful in terms of dealing with depression and all kinds of nuanced versions of mental illness. I but there are some, there are all sorts 
of psilocybin and the rest of it. But the MDMA usage is more intriguing in a sense because it is it's just almost cheap. I mean, it's free virtually to manufacture at scale and to control, whereas the, the other one... So I Let me quote her. Go on. Or to increase the possibility that you will stay in love when it's getting a little bit tricky. I absolutely agree with you. I have depression. I take antidepressants. Couldn't live without them. Fantastic. I'm absolutely with you on that. But the idea that this somehow can maintain a relationship feels to me to be an absolute mirage. Well, all antidepressants do is enable you to maintain a relationship with yourself. You have to do work with them, That was Simon. Confucius who said you that. You have to do work. I thought I'd just floated you past... Well, he's digging a third grave now, isn't he? You have to work with them. Times once more. Here's two words you don't hear grouped together very often. Erotic bins. I don't know, it's in the autocue. I say that all the time. <laughs> it's, uh, I imagine the episode of Blankety Black where erotic came up and the second word was bins. bins. <laughs> I don't think they expect to be going home with the bonus prize at that point. We have it? a video, apparently. Uh, look, it's, um, as ever, you look to Scandinavia for so uh, for left field social ex- yes. uh, sort of exploits to try and improve society, and once again they've come up with theirs, especially throw a little bit of sex in there. These are bins, and yeah. they are erotic. And how does that work? Well, it basically every time you deposit a little piece of rubbish in it, it makes a pleasured female voice. Apparently, you. now yes, absolutely, it'll say, "Oh, thank you," in a Swedish voice with and accent. That's no longer enough. You neck a load of MDMA. <laughs> Big Sweden, are there any gay bins? I mean, is there an erotic male voice that well, you get in order well, to I entice mean, you to throw boys rubbish? Was, I was, I was the point I was going to make, actually. It is almost seems to be exclusively female. They have said that there, it is a well-known celebrity, and, and of course it yeah. is a gimmick, but it's a gimmick to try and help with the, the, the tidying process. Um, Sweden's always done this, by the yeah. way. They trained crows to pick up cigarette butts. I was going to say, and, we and did that story. That was only about four months ago, and we did that story on here, and the, the Covid apparently is that has the intelligence of a seven-year-old. It's as good as having chimney sweep boys. It's the sort of thing that the Erdogan campaign. Well, I imagine which case is that age, but picks up the cigarette butt, then smokes uh, it. Okay. Simon, what chance of us getting our seven-year-olds to ever pick up cigarette butts? Yes, well, no, mine have no, outgrown that already, I'm afraid. Friday's mirror next. Whatever the opposite of a joyride is, this must be pretty close, Simon. This is uh, headline: Is woman wins 4.1 million car insurance payout after catching SDT in partner's Hyundai. Quite why that it's a Hyundai makes one. They do uh, emphasize that in the story. I think it's unkind, isn't it? It is it unkind. Really Basically, what happened was she was in a relationship with this guy. They had sex in the back of the car. It turned out he had um, HPV, which is a... a it's, I looked it up on the NHS... Some sort of pillow. Pillow. That's yeah, right. Yeah. So I looked it up on the NHS site, and the NHS site says it's a common group of viruses. They don't cause problems for most people, but they can cause genital warts or cancer. And you go... I'm sorry, I really don't think those two things belong in the same sentence. No. I mean, gentle words you can have removed. Cancer will yes. kill you. You know, it's one of those things where it's not getting a parking, you know. So she got a quite serious disease from this town. Oh. And it was covered by the car insurance. It was covered by the car insurance, as it's it would not. do if she'd shut her hand in, in the car door or uh, shut his in the car door or yeah. whatever. All of that would have been covered. This is, and I thought... Well, she, and the then not lighter. only, not only did it get covered, they then appealed, the insurance people did, and the higher court confirmed her... Um, Judgment. So that's what we don't know, of course. One million. Yeah, well, that's what we don't know is why it's that amount of money. We assume she's living with a, deb- a Maybe highly she's got deb- the, the warts and the cancer. She probably got the warts and the cancer. I'm going to go out on a limb and say the subject. By, I will say one thing: is... doesn't have a child, uh, a PhD in child psychology. This is from the Metro, Stephen. Oh, uh, okay then. I don't. I don't like to look down to, to refer, but here we go. Antonella Gambotto Burke. Uh, she has come to the conclusion 
through reasons that she believes to be sort of plainly obvious, though it's been uh, it's escaped child psychologists and people over the yeah. many decades, that bottle-fed babies are more likely to have a rubber fetish, it's, aka it's gimp a fairly suits. linear kind of calculation she's made. It right? the linear calculation is involved a starting point and end point and absolutely no information in yeah. between. But realistically, if you've been placed a rubber teat in your mouth because you were not breastfed, then you will then carry that through to later life yeah. and have much more higher prevalence of a rubber fetish. And you can understand the thinking behind it, except without any empirical evidence. Or and, and, uh, and a fetish for going... If when you get an opportunity, you know... I, there is an element of that. <laughs> the, the, the woman... In, 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 that is incredibly satisfying. You must have done that. With the rubber nipple on the... Uh, I mean, you mustn't Simon, do it before you Simon, get it in a baby's mouth. I think, I think you're on your own here. Have I, you never think you're on your own. You won't be. Of course you won't have been involved. I've looked after babies. I've battle-fed yes. babies. Have you? <laughs> what I do love about this, though, is that she, this, this is what dented her credibility for me. Her quote is, people feel comforted by rubber. I know I do. Yeah. yeah. No. No, I it's don't feel in the least bit comforted by rubber. It does look like one long explanation as to why she is. has a rubber fetish. Yes. What I'm trying to get at here, she's, she's branded as a feminist <laughs> and she's like spoken about uh, as a feminist, but I don't actually... I mean, I, I don't, not that I'm kind of trying to redefine feminism, but she seems to be quite conservative, almost reactionary. She, she's saying that women shouldn't, shouldn't... There shouldn't be formula feeding. Maybe she's trying to position that as something the patriarchy has made women do in order to get them working for the, for there the is, man or something. But, there is an argument of that. I mean, there are, there are many sort of uh, social drives in life that can that border yeah. on uh, a sort of religious fanaticism and sadly I feel breastfeeding is one of them. Yeah. Well, I think we need a palate cleanse after that one, so here's something about anthropology from Friday's Guardian, Simon. I like this one. This is... It's interesting... Actually, this is an interesting story. 65,000-year-old, quote, Swiss army knife, that's just a silly thing, mm. proves ancient human beings shared knowledge. What this is about is about they've discovered this tool, this knife, and what is interesting about it is they've discovered it identical it in a number of different places. It's a sort of a flint type of a thing. Yes, it? it's a yeah. flint type of thing. And the, but the point of that is that that is evidence, they believe, that there is therefore communication between mm. different parts of Southern Africa, which implies that there are social networks. The extrapolation of that is that this is a discovery from just before the great exodus, which is where right. we all come from, Out of, of course, and where the Neanderthals stayed and whatever. So one of the arguments is that one of the reasons the humans that we are survived that great exodus was their social networks and their ability to communicate with yeah. each other. And I tell knife. you what it, it reminded me of was the famous... It's a, it's a myth, really, but do you remember this? It's called the 100th monkey myth. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. idea that monkeys, uh, Japanese we, monkeys... We spoke about it only last night. Oh, yeah. You mean on the... Rupert Sheldrake, uh, the, um, the chap who, who studied the idea that, yes, right. there's this... I mean, it's much, de yeah. it's much debunked, and my favourite debunking yeah. of it was, it turns out, in the colony where it was supposed to happen, there only were 56 monkeys. <laughs> but, but I do love this idea of social networks <laughs> and the idea that that's one of the reasons we Should have been here last week. We had 100 in. <laughs> <laughs> Mail again. This might be the last story of the night. This article is about the largest ever predator to roam the UK. Uh, not Jimmy Savile. Uh, no, no, wrong sort of predator. Yeah. Yes, it's great to, uh, to finish off headliners with what something that my uh, my eight and nine year old will go mad for. Fantastic. It's dinosaur news and and genuinely exciting news that they probably have discovered the largest 
dinosaur to have roamed Europe in the Isle of Wight of all places. There it is. Look the, at the two-legged spinosaur uh, artist impression, not photo from actual time. Thirty-two <laughs> uh, <laughs> foot long, the size of a London bus. Uh, That's not an appropriate comparison in this situation. I it is. I'm genuinely upset they didn't put a London bus on the picture next. Yeah. <laughs> it lived 125 million years ago, would have weighed several tons. Uh, and but they're, uh, it's they're fantastic. The idea of that roaming the Isle of Wight long before the first tea shops opened. Well, that like, was the thing, and I read. Dinosaur on the Isle of Wight. I just thought it was a very old person on the Isle of Wight. But what I love about this thing is it can swim. Fantastic. Well, yes, spinosaurs, that, that was their thing. That is all we have time for. Thank you so much to my guest, Simon Fanshawe, Stephen Grant. You've been fantastic company. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining me at home. Tomorrow evening, I think it's Mark Tolan. It's certainly not me. Anyway, thank you very much for joining us tonight. See you soon. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to Headliners, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode again. And if you enjoyed it, leave me a nice comment. Speak to you at the same time tomorrow for the paper review that's never boring.